Aloha, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Dr. William Lane Craig, many have heard of him, an evangelical Christian apologist, theologian, and analytic philosopher known for his work in the philosophy of religion, historical Jesus studies, and the philosophy of time. He is one of the most visible contemporary proponents of natural theology, often participating in debates uh, throughout the country of the existence of God. And we are so privileged to have him here with us, Pat. Yes, Tony, and we're also going to have him here live mm -hmm. in the state of Hawaii. You know, what more can you ask for? Beautiful weather, beautiful beach, but also great apologetics with Dr. Mm -hmm. William Lane Craig. So, Dr. Craig, we're really excited about you being here in Hawaii. Not as excited as I am. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the first question we have is, you know, why should Christians, all Christians, be interested in apologetics? Why do we need apologetics? Apologetics, first of all, is basically the defense of the Christian faith. It answers the mm -hmm. question, why should we think that Christianity is true? And I think there are at least three very good reasons that the study of apologetics is a vital part of Christian discipleship for anybody who's living in the Western world today. First of all, is that it helps Christianity to be heard in our culture as an intellectually viable option for thinking people today. It is very important that we preserve a culture in which Christianity cannot just be written off as superstition, like believing in the tooth fairy or in Santa Claus. Mm. And apologetics will help to create that sort of cultural milieu in which the gospel can be heard as a reasonable option. Secondly, I think that apologetics is vital for one's own personal Christian faith. It can help one to persevere in times of doubt and spiritual dryness. It will help to prevent our youth from leaving the faith and uh, becoming secularized. It can make us into deeper, more reflective, and more interesting people as we contemplate these deep questions like the existence of God and the meaning of life and the foundation of moral values. So I think it's really a vital part of uh, one's own personal Christian life. And then the third reason I would give is that it's an important tool in evangelism. We are living in an increasingly secular culture where unbelievers want to hear reasons and evidence for thinking that the gospel is true. Otherwise, we'll just be dismissed as emotional Bible pounders. And I think it's increasingly important in our culture today that we present ourselves to unbelievers as intelligent, compassionate people who have good reasons to believe what we do. You know, Dr. Craig, there's some people that say you cannot reason people into the kingdom of God. You can't argue with them into the kingdom of God. You just need to love them. Why don't you respond to that objection? Well, notice that that objection only applies to the third point that I made about winning unbelievers. Even if that were true, it wouldn't affect the first or the second point I made, that apologetics helps to shape culture to make the gospel a reasonable option, and it helps to build up believers. But even with respect to that third goal of winning uh, unbelievers to Christ, I think people who say this just don't do very much evangelism, frankly, because what we have found is that when the gospel is presented uh, in the context of giving an intellectual defense of the faith and a personal testimony, the Holy Spirit is pleased to use it to help draw people to himself. When you present arguments and evidence for the Christian faith, you're not working apart from or against the Holy Spirit. Rather, you're trusting the Holy Spirit to use the arguments and evidence as a means of drawing people to himself. And God 
is doing this. Uh, Lee Strobel recently remarked to me that he has lost count of the number of people who have come to Christ through reading his books, The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith, and his other books. So it, it's simply not true that God doesn't use uh, argument and evidence as part of the means of drawing men and women to himself. Yes, and Paul states in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so sometimes before you can share the gospel, often you've got to dispel the false ideas that are out there that keep people from taking seriously your message. Yes, that verse is one that I have actually claimed as a sort of motto for our ministry, Reasonable Faith. And what Paul says there, I think, is very foreign to the experience of many American Christians. He talks there about destroying arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of Christ, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. This is not just an emotional appeal or warm fuzzies that Paul is talking about there. He is talking about an argumentatively aggressive, uh, intellectually sound um, interaction of the Christian faith with its non-Christian uh, opponents. Now, you also mentioned there's a very practical side to apologetics. Many Christians feel that, well, apologetics is all intellectual and theoretical and for the scholars. But uh, there's a very practical side uh, to apologetics, isn't there? Yes, and this has been a facet of it that I think has really surprised me, frankly, and has become increasingly obvious to me as I've been involved in ministry. I have discovered that when people, Christians I mean, when Christians find that there are really good reasons to believe that God exists and that Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed to be, it ignites them spiritually, not just intellectually. And so it leads to almost personal revival in the lives of many people where they suddenly become excited witnessing Christians who are in love with God and want their lives to count for Jesus Christ. Alex McFarland has remarked to me that he thinks the next great revival in the United States will be brought about through the study of apologetics. And as strange as that might sound, I, I think he may really be right. It will be through a quickening or a reawakening of the life of the mind that people will become confident in their Christian faith, and therefore really excited about it, in love with Jesus Christ, and anxious to share their faith with others. Right, and Dr. Craig, you do a lot of debates, and well, people will say, well, I haven't seen the opponent come to Christ or anything, but that's really not your objective, is it? What is no, it? No, no, folks debate? who say that don't understand why I participate in these debates. The person that I am trying to persuade in these debates is not the opponent. He is there simply as a foil or a sounding board. The person I'm trying to persuade is that student in the audience whose mind is still open and who is seeking for the truth about God or, or Jesus Christ. And so the whole focus of these debates is on trying to reach out to those student audiences and let them hear an intellectually credible defense of the Christian faith conjoined with a personal testimony and, and a challenge for them to begin to look into it themselves. And it's also for the believer out there to know that there are credible, valid reasons to believe in Christ, and it can stand up to some of the strongest arguments of the skeptics and atheists yes. out there. Yes, that's right. My primary motivation has always been 
evangelism. I, I want to reach the seekers, and that's why the focus of my ministry is university speaking rather than Christian church speaking or conference speaking. But I have come to realize over the years that this ministry of the defense of the faith really is important for Christian discipleship, and it has this effect upon Christians that I described of igniting them spiritually and making them more confident and eager to share their faith in Christ so that the ultimate impact on evangelism will be greater if one can mobilize those Christians in the audience as well and not simply speak to the unbelievers. So you're quite right about the effect that this has on the believer in the audience as well as the unbeliever. Hmm. Dr. Craig, it's known that we lose a lot of our kids during their college years. Through these debates that you have, the different colleges that you visit, what, in your opinion, has been the most important question that has been asked by a student concerning this existence of God? Concerning the existence of God, I guess I would say that they want to know if there's any evidence. That's probably the main obstacle to belief. They have been taught this mantra that is repeated, especially by the so-called new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, that mm. there's no evidence for God. And so many of them think that believing in God is on the same level as believing in Santa Claus. I've actually heard that comparison. And so probably the most important question to address would be this question, are there good reasons to believe that God exists? And mm -hmm. most of these students, sadly, and I mean even Christian students, mm -hmm. have never, ever heard anyone give any good reasons to think that there is a God. Many people, because we're dominated by the naturalist worldview, and science is kind of king here, and many yes. will say, well, we want scientific proof of the evidence of God, but there's limits to science, isn't there, Dr. Craig? Oh, that's obviously true. Science is limited to what can be perceived by the five senses, but mm. science can't tell us anything, for example, about uh, moral values uh, or, or aesthetic values. These are not open to the scientific method. Similarly, there are metaphysical truths about, say, the reality of the external world or the nature of time that are not scientifically accessible. And in the same way, I think there can be truths about God that may not be accessible through the five senses. Indeed, when you think about the very idea of God, he is a being that is immaterial, and non-physical, and therefore cannot be apprehended by the five senses. You can't smell him, see him, touch him, or hear him. So by the very nature of the case, science is really quite incompetent to say anything directly about the existence of God, which is one reason I think science can never disprove the existence of God. What I think science can do, and this is the way I use it, is that I think science can furnish evidence for a premise in a sound argument leading to the conclusion that God exists. Let me repeat that. I, I think science can provide evidence in support of a premise in a sound argument leading to the conclusion that God exists. And in that sense, I do think there can be scientific evidence that's relevant to the question of God's existence. Well, let's begin with uh, the first uh, argument for the existence of God, one that you're very a uh, strong proponent of, or it's the cosmological argument, or the argument from first cause. Explain that one to us. This is one version of the argument that goes like this. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. 
That is to say, things don't just pop into being out of nothing. Things that come into being that begin to exist have causes. Premise two says the universe began to exist. And here I provide both scientific and philosophical uh, arguments for the truth of that second premise that the universe began to exist. Now, what follows from those two premises? Well, if whatever begins to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist, it follows logically that therefore the universe has a cause. And then what you can do is try to unpack this notion of what it means to be a cause of the universe, and you find that quite a number of the attributes of God uh, come out of this. For example, as a cause of the universe, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be a being that transcends space and time, and therefore must be immaterial and non-physical. It is beginningless, changeless, enormously powerful, since it brought the universe into being out of, uh, without, a mater- without any material cause, um, and has several of the other attributes, I think, that make this uh, a personal creator of the universe. Dr. Craig, uh, what are some evidences that we know the universe does indeed have a beginning? Well, I think there are good philosophical arguments that the past cannot be infinite. For example, if you had an actually infinite number of things, then if you took away from that infinite collection, say, all of the odd-numbered things, how many things would you have left? Well, you'd have all the even-numbered things. So infinity minus infinity is infinity. But suppose instead of taking away all the odd-numbered things, you took away all the things numbered greater than three. Now how many things would you have left? Well, you'd have only three things left, right? Mm -hmm. One, two, and three. three. And so infinity minus infinity is three. And yet, in both of these cases, you took away identical quantities from identical quantities and came up with non-identical results. In fact, you can come up with any result from zero to infinity. And what I think this shows is that the idea of an actually infinite number of things is absurd. You can talk about it conceptually in mathematics. You can do it on paper, but it can't be translated into the real world. Now, if that's the case, that means that the number of events in the past history of the universe cannot be infinite. There must be only a finite number of events and therefore the universe began to exist. You know, one of the objections that I'm hearing now is coming from Stephen Hawking's new book, uh, The Mm -hmm. Grand Design, where he claims that because, I believe, of the law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So according to Hawking, really there's no need for a God or a first cause. Mm -hmm. A spontaneous creation uh, is the reason there is something rather than nothing. All right, now let's be clear about what Hawking is objecting to. He is not disputing the premise that we've been talking about, that the universe began to exist. On the contrary, in his book, The Grand Design, he affirms that the universe and time itself had an absolute beginning, what he calls the South Pole of his space-time model. So he actually provides scientific evidence for the second premise of the cosmological argument that the universe began to exist. What he appears to deny is premise one, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. He suggests that the universe came into being out of nothing. But, and here's the trick, Pat, when you read his book, what you discover is when he uses the word nothing, he is not using that word in the proper philosophical sense of non-being, that is to say, nothing at all. Rather, he's using the word to 
indicate the vacuum in physics. And the, the, the vacuum in physics is not nothing. It's not what the layman thinks of by vacuum. The vacuum in physics is empty space filled with energy, kind of a low-level energy. And so Hawking says the universe fluctuates into being out of the energy that exists in empty space. Well, that's not nothing. And in fact, that vacuum state cannot have existed from eternity past. It, too, had to have a beginning. So he really doesn't dispute the premise that out of nothing, nothing comes. He just misuses the word nothing to talk about something. He's really asking, how does something come out of something else? The advertising campaign that preceded the second book, there was all sorts of hype and popular articles out preceding the second book, making it look as though Hawking had hardened his position. But in fact, if you read the two books, A Brief History of Time and The Grand Design, there's, there's really nothing new in the grand design, scientifically speaking, if, uh, that, that is of any substance. It's really the same view that he held in A Brief History of Time, and that is that you don't need to appeal to a creator and designer of the cosmos in order to explain the origin and complexity of the universe. He tries to provide naturalistic explanations of these and says, therefore, there's no need for a creator. But as I said, with regard to the origin of the universe, at least, this is based on an equivocation, uh, a misuse of the word nothing, to talk about the origin of the universe from a quantum vacuum state, not from nothing. It's, it's simply a ledger domain. It's, it's a, a sleight of hand trick. You have an article on that on your website, I assume? A couple of the uh, questions of the week that I get from readers deal with this. Number 180 and 181, as I recall, are on Hawking and Mladenov's book, The Grand Design. Great, and that's at reasonablefaith.org. Dr. Craig, the second argument is the design argument or the teleological argument. Explain that one to us. The most discussed current form of the design argument doesn't appeal to biological examples of design, like the old creation-evolution debates. Rather, it goes right back to the very beginning of the universe in the Big Bang. And what scientists have been stunned to discover over the last 40 years or so is that in order for intelligent life to evolve anywhere in the cosmos, there had to be this incomprehensibly uh, fine-tuned initial set of conditions given in the Big Bang itself. And because these are initial conditions, they cannot be explained as the product of any sort of prior evolution. They're just there in the beginning. And the argument is that uh, the best explanation of this incredible fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe is not physicality or chance, but rather design. And therefore, this argument would lead to a transcendent designer of the cosmos. Now, there are some who uh, offer an explanation, espouse the theory that there are multiple universes, and that it just so happens that this universe just so happens to be able to sustain life. How do you yes. answer that one? It's very important, before we give an answer, to realize just how radical an alternative this is. Otherwise hard-headed scientists would not be postulating these metaphysical realities, like uh, an infinite number of parallel, undetectable universes, unless their backs were absolutely to the wall. This is 
the last gasp of defense for the chance hypothesis to postulate this infinite number of invisible parallel universes out there so that by chance alone uh, a finely tuned universe like ours will appear somewhere in the ensemble or the multiverse. Now what's the matter with this? Well there are a number of things wrong with this hypothesis I think but here's one that has been pressed by Roger Penrose of Oxford University who was uh, Hawking's colleague in his earlier work. Penrose points out that it is vastly more probable that our solar system would form instantaneously by the random collision of particles than that a finely tuned universe like ours should exist. He says it's utter chicken feed by comparison. It is incomprehensibly more probable that our solar system would just form in an instant by the random collision of particles than that a finely tuned universe should exist. Now what that means is that if we are just a random member by chance in this world ensemble of parallel universes, then it is incomprehensibly more probable that we ought to be observing an island of order which is no larger than our solar system, because observable universes like that are simply unfathomably more plenteous in the world ensemble than finely tuned universes. So if we are just one chance member of this ensemble, it is incomprehensibly more probable that we should be observing a, uh, an island of order no larger than our solar system, which contradicts observations. So our observations strongly disconfirm this multiverse or many worlds hypothesis. And for that reason, Penrose says these multiverse scenarios are, are virtually worse than useless in explaining the observed fine-tuning of our cosmos. Well, that's a great explanation. Now here's another one I think posed by Richard Dawkins. He says the universe came about by chance and it looks as if it is designed. How do you answer that one? Well, one needs to weigh the alternatives to design, and I already suggested that there are two alternatives to design, either physical necessity or chance. Physical necessity says that the fine-tuning is physically necessary. That's the way the universe had to be. Virtually nobody holds that, including Dawkins himself. In his book, The God Delusion, he cites the astronomer royal, Sir Martin Rees, who says this is extremely unlikely, and Dawkins says, I think I agree. So physical necessity isn't the best explanation. So Dawkins opts for the explanation of chance, and in fact he goes for the many worlds hypothesis that you and I have just been discussing. But interestingly enough, he never discusses any of the objections to the many worlds hypothesis, including Roger Penrose's objection that you and I have just discussed. He says nothing at all. He's not even aware of this objection. Yeah, you know, an example I often hear is, is called fairy circles, where mushrooms, you know, uh, yeah. spew forth their spores in a circular pattern, and the yes. next morning you wake up and you've got a circle of mushrooms. And it right. looks like it's intelligently designed, but it's not. Right. And the explanation in that case would be what? Is it chance? No. Is it design? No. It's physical necessity. The spores radiate out on these little tendrils, and so they created their perimeter, a circumference of mushrooms. It happens by physical necessity. And so the question would be, can you explain the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe similarly by physical 
necessity, and it turns out that you, you can't. There isn't any sort of physical theory that would render these constants and quantities in question physically necessary. And as I say, Dawkins admits this. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the finest Christian scholars and apologists here in the United States. He's done numerous debates throughout the world. He also is an author of several books. And Dr. Craig, also tell us about your website. Well, our website is called reasonablefaith.org. It is now three years old, and there are just there's just tons of free material on the site. Everything is free to anyone who comes and visits. And we have a question of the week that I answer every week. We have an open forum where people can participate in dialogues with believers and non-believers alike. I have uh, scholarly articles and popular articles posted there. I have transcripts of some of my debates on the website. We have a store where you can purchase books and DVDs and CDs. And we have an audiovisual page where many of these DVDs and CDs are free and downloadable, viewable, or listenable right there on the website. So just lots of good things that are uh, available at reasonablefaith.org. Well, all right. Uh, thank you once again, Dr. Greg, for joining us here with Pat Zuccaran on Evidence and Answers. Hey, I tell you what, will you come back next week? We'd like to talk more story with you and ask more questions. Great. I look forward to it. Okay. Once again, you can um, find uh, Dr. Craig at his website, reasonablefaith.org. Uh, 